please turn in your Bibles to Mark chapter 10. As you're turning there, let me remind you that last Sunday, uh, we studied Mark chapter 10, verses 32 to 52. Uh, Remember, last week we saw that Mark ends his account of Jesus' journey on the way to Jerusalem uh, with first a prediction of Jesus' death and resurrection, a second, another blunder by the disciples, specifically James and John, uh, and then third, with another lesson about what it looks like to follow Jesus, and fourth and finally, with the healing of a blind man. Well, this morning, we are re-examining that third section of the text that we looked at last week. We're looking at the lesson uh, that Jesus gave in Mark chapter 10, verses 42 to 45. And as I'll say in a moment, we're zooming in particularly on verse 45. So let me read the text for us once more. I'm sorry, let me read the text, uh, and then, Lord willing, I'll pray once more. Mark chapter 10, verses 42 to 45. And Jesus called them to him and said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Please pray with me. God, as we come to your word Would you open our eyes to see wonderful things from your law? We will not see rightly unless your spirit gives us faith, gives us sight, and inclines our hearts to your word. So do that now, we pray, that we might commune with you as we hear from you, that we might be made like our Lord Jesus as we follow him, and that we might love and trust him more deeply as we see who he is and all that he's done. Help me to preach. Help us to listen by your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, this morning, I would like to divide our time in God's word uh, in half. So in the first half of the sermon, uh, I just love to walk through these four verses together at an even pace. Uh, As we go, we'll apply these verses to our lives I think about what the text means. And then in the second half of our time together, I want us to really drill down on that very last phrase in our passage where Jesus says that he has come to give his life as a ransom for many. Christians throughout history have recognized that Jesus' words here about giving his life as a ransom for many are really important for our understanding of what's going on uh, as Jesus dies on the cross. Uh, So as we'll see, uh, these verses get at what systematic theologians have called penal substitutionary atonement. And so I trust we'll be served to spend the second half of the sermon thinking about what it means that Jesus gives his life as a ransom. So there you have the plan. First, walking through the passage, second, drilling down on that last 
phrase. So first, let's walk through the text together. Uh, The first verse of our passage opens with Jesus calling together uh, a team meeting. Uh, Verse 42 says, And Jesus called them, in context clearly the twelve disciples, to him. Uh, This is not one of those regularly scheduled meetings that happens whether or not it needs to. This is very clearly uh, a specially called meeting uh, to address a specific problem. Remember, the wider context is that immediately after Jesus says for the third time that he is going to Jerusalem to suffer and to die and to be raised from the dead, immediately after that, remember, James and John asked Jesus if they could be honored above all the other disciples, the other 10 disciples here, and they are indignant. So this is a moment of tension and heightened emotion among the disciples. And so humbly, gently, Jesus calls the team together for a lesson. Jesus begins the lesson there in verse 42 by speaking about worldly greatness. Look again at 42. Mark says, And Jesus called them to him and said to them, You know, that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. And now Jesus is about to condemn what he's just described. And so especially in our age, which is extremely suspicious of any kind of authority, it's really important to note that the words Jesus uses here that get translated, uh, lord it over or exercise authority over. Uh, These are not the ordinary words that the Bible uses to describe human authority relationships. Uh, Both of those words, especially in this context, really strongly emphasize that idea of being over someone or ruling uh, on top of them, them under you. Jesus is telling the disciples, you know that for the nations who don't know God, authority, greatness, influence is all about me above you. Authority, greatness, influence in the world's eyes are about being on top. So we shouldn't see Jesus' words as a condemnation of authority per se, Jesus is pointing out the selfish and self-glorifying misuse of authority. Let me give you two examples of what Jesus is talking about from his own day. I'm sorry, just one example rather. You may remember Jesus' famous words from the Sermon on the Mount. When Jesus says, if anyone forces you to go with you one mile, go with him two miles. Well, that might just sound like a proverb to us, but Jesus' words there seem to refer to the Roman law uh, that Roman soldiers were allowed to force uh, a Jewish bystander to carry their equipment uh, for a distance roughly equivalent to a mile. So here is a Roman soldier with heavy equipment, with armor, with shield, sword. Maybe he's got some personal items. He's traveling. He's tired from carrying them, and he sees a Jewish person not a citizen of Rome. Maybe he's working. Maybe he's resting. Doesn't really matter what he's doing. The Roman soldier had the authority to say to the Jew, hey, I don't care who you are. I don't care what you're doing. I have authority 
to tell you to drop whatever you're doing and carry my things for me. My authority allows me to put me over you. Now, thanks be to God, in some ways, our culture today is different. Uh, The spread of Christianity has made humility and service, or at least the appearance of humility and service, uh, more popular virtues than they used to be. Uh, We even find non-Christians talking about servant leadership, although unfortunately that can become code for seeking glory by getting people to like us, still me over you, just a different system of rules. In some ways, our culture is different, but in other ways, our culture is exactly the same. That's because the human heart is exactly the same. I'm not telling you anything new uh, to tell you that you don't have to look far to find bosses and politicians and rich elites and pastors and husbands and really any kind of figure with authority or influence, or any kind of greatness, who views whatever they have as a means of serving and glorifying themselves, a means of putting me over you. Friends, if we're very honest, don't we see at least something of this impulse uh, in our hearts? The impulse to use what we have, the impulse to use those around us, the impulse to use especially those under us in any sense for our own glory and our own comfort, for our own advancement, even if it's through the people-pleasing route. Well, look what Jesus says about this attitude there in verses 43 and 44. Jesus says, But it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. Jesus is teaching that for those who know and follow him, me above you is not the way. Authority is real, but me above you is not its purpose. For those who follow Jesus, greatness, prominence, authority are actually all about love and service. By the way, that's how God, the supreme authority, that's one of the ways that God has used his authority from the beginning. Other ancient mythologies uh, often describe gods as creating humans uh, to do their dirty work for them. What are humans? How did they get here? Well, the gods needed slaves, and so they made people. But the Bible describes God as using his might, his authority to bless mankind, to give to mankind. Yes, so that they might serve him, but for their own good. In the opening chapters of the Bible, God puts the first man and the first woman in a garden of abundance. He gives them perfect jobs and a perfect marriage so that they can go have perfect kids. He blesses them with his favor. He gives them authority over the earth and over the animals. Throughout the Bible, the rules 
that God gives to his people. He makes so clear they are rules for our good. They are love commandments. And now to be clear, there is a fundamental difference between God's authority over his creation and our authority over one another in human relationships. So if, if I treat you like you exist for me through my authority, that's evil. And the reason that that's evil is because I am not God. It's evil to treat, for me to treat you like you exist for my sake because you and I and everybody and everything exists for God's sake. As Paul says in Romans, from him, through him, and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever and ever. God is objectively over us in every sense. He is actually more important than us. So if God, who has absolute authority over his creatures, uses his authority to love and to serve and to give, how much more ought we to use whatever we have, whatever greatness, whatever authority, whatever influence, to love, to give, to serve, to do good. Jesus here commands his followers not to use greatness or authority to put me over you. He says, in fact, if you want true greatness, greatness that is like God himself, if you want to be first in God's eyes, in his economy, the path you must take is the path of humbly serving others. Whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. Uh, Brothers and sisters, is this how we pursue greatness? Is this how we think about what it is to live well? Is this model of humbly loving and serving? other people a deep heart-level aspiration for us in our jobs, in our families, in our marriages, in our parenting, in our friendships, in our membership at the church, in our diaconal role if we're a deacon, in our pastoral role if we're an elder, in our volunteer role if we have one. Is our goal, is our bullseye Humble service to others for the glory of God? Or is it some version, maybe even a religious version, of me above you? This is how Paul puts it in Philippians chapter 2. He says, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind in yourselves, Paul says, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Or as another translation puts it, have this mind in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. The ultimate reason that Jesus lists as he calls us to humble service 
as our calling is because that's what Jesus came to do. There in the first half of verse 45, look there. Jesus says in verse 45, for even the son of man, the eternal king of mankind, came not to be served, but to serve. Brothers and sisters, isn't that exactly what we've seen of Jesus in Mark's gospel? Jesus has been a round-the-clock servant of everybody. How does Jesus spend his time praying for his disciples, preaching and teaching, laying his hands on thousands and thousands and thousands of sick people to heal them, casting out demons on his way to heal one sick person, interrupted by another sick person, heals that sick person, continues the voyage, heals the second sick person, feeding the hungry, discipling the disciples, taking time in the midst of all of that to embrace, to hug, to bless, to pray for young children. Jesus, we've seen throughout Mark, came to serve. The point is not that our calendar should look exactly like Jesus' calendar. Jesus was unique, understatement. The point is Jesus came not to be served, but to serve, and he calls us to follow him. Saints, I I just want to say I am so encouraged by the humble service that I see among God's people here. If there is humble service going on here, it's not because we're great. It's because God has produced the fruit of likeness to Jesus in us, to his glory. Brothers and sisters, when you open your homes to one another for meals, for Bible studies, for community groups, just to have someone over, when you serve on the security team, the soon-to-exist greeter team, the AV team, the children's ministry, the music team, when you serve as a ministry lead, as a volunteer, as a deacon, a deaconess, a treasurer, an elder, in some other role that I missed, when you spend your Saturday to go to Emmanuel Baptist Church to help them distribute food and the gospel and to help us figure out whether we might do a similar thing, When you who are parents spend yourselves raising your children in the discipline and instruction of the Lord, when you approach your job with a heart of humble service to other people made in God's image, humble service toward your nation, a humble service of providing for your family, when you decide that the kingdom of Jesus would be better served if you lived somewhere else where the gospel is less known, and so you go and serve there. Brothers and sisters, when we do these things, when you do these things, not for your glory, but for God's, you are being like Jesus, who came not to be served, but to serve. How pleasing it is in God's eyes, when his people are by grace like Jesus. Praise God for how the gospel transforms our hearts from wanting to use whatever we have to put me over you, to becoming humble servants in love of God, of one another, of our neighbors.
there at the end of verse 45, Jesus ends his lesson by mentioning one particular way that he came to serve. Look there again at verse 45. Jesus says, therefore, even the son of man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. We've seen throughout Mark's gospel, Jesus has been serving, but Jesus didn't come only or even primarily uh, to do miraculous deeds of kindness throughout first century Galilee. Uh, Those miracles were primarily signs of Jesus' great act of service, which was the giving of his life as a ransom for many. So it's here at this halfway point that we need to turn the corner and consider what it is that Jesus means when he says that he gives his life as a ransom for many. It's very interesting in this passage, we're called to imitate and follow Jesus in his self-sacrificial love. That's kind of the thrust of the passage, follow Jesus in his service. And yet, this passage and the whole Bible is very clear that Jesus' service in his death was unique. Jesus is, of course, not the only person who ever lovingly died for others. All sorts of people made in the image of God are capable of dying in love. But the claim of the Bible is that there is a sense in which Jesus' death is in a class of its own, both in terms of its cost and in terms of the magnitude and the quality of its effects. It is unique in how much it costs Jesus and in what the death of Jesus achieves. And it makes sense that Jesus' death would be in a class of its own because Jesus is, of course, in a class of his own. Jesus alone is truly God and truly man. The Bible teaches that the unique thing about Jesus' death was that it was a moral and spiritual transaction. As Jesus died, his act of dying was itself a moral and spiritual transaction. The Bible describes that transaction in various ways. Uh, The death of Jesus is described as a sin-bearing or a sin-removing act. It's described as a cleansing or a purifying act. It's described as the absorbing of a curse that had to fall somewhere. And in our passage, it's described as a ransom payment. Now, when you hear that word ransom, uh, we, we as particularly today need to not immediately associate everything that we think about ransoms uh, with what Jesus is saying. So when I hear the word ransom, I think first about the protagonist in the space trilogy written by C.S. Lewis, which is a great book series. But mainly, uh, I think about a bad guy holding a victim hostage until a good guy gives the bad guy money for the release of the hostage. That's not what Jesus is talking about here. The word Jesus uses is used in many, many other contexts than that. Uh, The word Jesus uses basically means a payment or a price that leads to deliverance. 
So the sort of hostage ransom idea is one specific example of that, but it's not the best illustration for the kind of ransom that Jesus is talking about, the kind of payment or price that leads to deliverance or freedom. When Jesus was dying on the cross, he was paying a price so that everyone who trusts in him might be delivered from sin and death and hell. So with the rest of our time this morning, I just want us to ask and answer three questions about this ransom which Jesus accomplished in his death. Three questions we need to ask and answer. First, to whom is this ransom paid? Second, why is this ransom necessary? And then third, how does this ransom work? To whom is the ransom paid? Why is this ransom necessary? And how does it work? So first, to whom is this ransom paid? If Jesus' death is a payment or a transaction, with whom is the transaction? To whom does the payment go? Well, throughout church history, several answers have been given. Uh, Many have taught that Jesus' death was a ransom payment made to the devil. Uh, That teaching seems to have originated with the church father Origen, who lived in the third century. And here's the reasoning behind the answer. Uh, The Bible clearly presents the death of Jesus as the way that God triumphs over Satan. And the Bible also clearly teaches that the death of Jesus delivers us from the dominion of Satan. And the idea of Satan receiving the ransom fits that hostage situation that we talked about earlier. Satan's the bad guy. We're the victim. God's the good guy. He pays off Satan and we are freed. So although this theory was popular for certain periods of church history, uh, the church eventually turned away from the idea that the death of Jesus was paid to Satan And that's good because I I trust we'll see that it's not biblical. So here are the problems. Uh, First, the Bible never talks about Satan as receiving anything from the death of Jesus except destruction. Uh, Satan is never mentioned anywhere as profiting from the death of Jesus in any way. Uh, The Bible never calls Satan the recipient of this ransom. And second, the idea that God bows to Satan's terms is totally inconsistent with how Jesus has dealt with Satan throughout the Gospels, especially the Gospel of Mark. Remember what Jesus has done every time he's encountered a demon? Has he sort of bartered, said, okay, look, I know that you kind of belong in this person, but, you know, if I do this for you, would you maybe maybe leave? We can all leave so you can do it in private, right? Is that what, how Jesus barters with the demons in the gospel of Mark? No, he says, what is your name? Get out, right? That's how God deals with Satan. And this idea that God needs to capitulate to Satan's terms or owes him something if he's to deliver us is unbiblical. Uh, The Old Testament event, which is the clearest picture of our ransom, our redemption in Christ, is, of course, the exodus from Egypt when God redeemed Israel out of Egypt. Did God give Pharaoh a dime when he ransomed the people of Israel out of Egypt? No, he did not. The ransom does not go to Satan. Others throughout church history have argued that the ransom paid by Jesus in his death was paid to meet some sort of standard. 
So some have argued that Jesus' death satisfies the demands of the law or that it satisfies the demands of justice. And as far as that goes, it is true. Paul says in Galatians that Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law. Paul says in Romans that the death of Jesus satisfies God's justice. The only problem is if we conceive of God's law or as his justice as something outside God that he has to obey. Sometimes when we talk about the gospel, we talk about it like this. God wants to forgive our sin because he's loving But God has to be just because there are these rules about justice. And God, you know, is conflicted, but he he probably should obey those rules about justice. And the death of Jesus enables God to obey the rules and to forgive us. When we talk about the law or about justice as something outside of or external to God himself. That's where we've gone wrong. Now, the death of Jesus does satisfy God's law. It does satisfy justice, but it is God's law. It is God's justice that the death of Jesus satisfies, as we'll explore in a moment. The death of Jesus is not a ransom paid to Satan, It is not a payment made to meet some sort of arbitrary rules outside of and above God. The answer on which evangelical and reformed theology have landed, the answer which I see the Bible teaches, is that the ransom paid by Jesus' death is paid to God himself. On the cross, the recipient of the payment. The other end of the transaction is God. This is exactly what we saw in Hebrews chapter 9, where the author says that the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish, was offered to God. The ransom-paying blood of Jesus is received by God himself. As we'll see in a moment, this transaction is a transaction which the triune God, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit performs with himself to satisfy himself. The ransom payment of Jesus' blood is paid to God. That's our first question. Second question, why is this ransom necessary? This this is a fairly common question about Christianity. Why does there need to be a ransom if God is willing to forgive us? That's not an intuitive idea, especially in today's world. Well, it would be enough if we were to say, listen, God, who knows more than us and who has demonstrated his trustworthiness in his word and through the resurrection of his son, says that this is the way it has to be. And so we should believe it. That would be enough. But God's word reveals more. And we want to see what the scriptures say about why this ransom was necessary. Let me start by clarifying what the answer to that question is not. The answer to the question, why is this ransom necessary, is not, emphatically not, that the Father was unwilling to forgive but that Jesus changed God's mind and moved him to forgive us. 
That is exactly wrong. This ransom payment was the father's idea because he desired in his love to forgive us. There is no verse in the Bible that says, For God did not so love the world until the only begotten Son gave himself to win the Father over. That's not a verse in the Bible. What is a verse in the Bible is, For God, God the Father, so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son. So if God the Father was willing to forgive us, why Was the ransom necessary? Two answers. First, if God forgave with no ransom, he would be denying who he is. If God forgave with no ransom, he would be denying who he is. Who is God? God is the supremely worthy and glorious one. The creator who is actually on top of all things. And sin is essentially us putting ourselves on top of God. Uh, Your rules don't govern the universe. My desires should. Sin is failing to esteem and revere and worship God as supreme. A sin puts us on top of God and says, my will be done. And God cannot, will not say to sinners, that's okay, you can be on top. It's a, you, can, you know, you can take it. It's fine. For God not to punish and oppose sin would be for God to deny who he is. Who is God? He's on top. He's also good and righteous. What is it to be good and righteous except to hate evil? If you don't hate evil, you are not good and righteous. If God did not oppose and condemn sin, he would not be the good God that he is. If we get to the end of history and God says to all the monstrous evil in the world, all the rape and murder and unjust war and abuse and idolatry and rebellion against him, hey, you know what? It's okay. We'll just, we'll just laugh it off. You know, shake it off. It's okay. No consequences. God would be condoning evil. If that's how the story ends, then evil is the sensible option. In the book of Exodus, this is how God describes who God is. When God says his name to Moses, he says, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. But who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generations. God tells Moses, listen, Moses, this is who I am. This is what it means that I'm God. I'm forgiving. I'm full of love and mercy. I'm full of steadfast kindness and I am totally committed to calling evil, evil, and completely unwilling to capitulate to it. 
I will punish it. That's who I am. That's what it means that I'm God. And so for the entire Old Testament, the mystery lingers. How can God be both? How can God's very name be that he loves and forgives and that he will not clear the guilty? Can you see if God is to be God and be forgiving, there must be some kind of transaction, some kind of deed which vindicates God's godness even as he forgives. That's the first reason this ransom is necessary. Why is it necessary? In order for God to remain who he is, there must be a ransom. Second reason this ransom is necessary is that forgiveness always requires a payment. Forgiveness always requires a payment. Earlier this week, I was in Washington, D.C., and I parallel parked my car uh, behind someone who, unbeknownst to me, was still in his car. And as I was walking away from my car, which, in my fallible human opinion, had left this man plenty of room to leave when he desired to leave, this man popped out of his car and shouted quite aggressively at me uh, to move my car further away from his There was a bystander, and he sort of agreed with me that that guy was being aggressive. I didn't address the bystander. The bystander kind of piped in. Anyways, by God's grace, I did not shout back. I tried to respond calmly. I was not looking to get into an argument. So I was right there, got back in my car, gave him a little more space, and walked off. It was not a big deal at all. Here's the thing. When this guy shouted aggressively at me, I really wanted to shout back. And then after I didn't, I really wanted to badmouth him to this bystander who addressed me. And then even as I walked off, I really wanted to badmouth him to myself on the sidewalk. In a tiny, tiny way, I felt affronted and embarrassed and Really, I wanted him to feel affronted and embarrassed. I felt like the the weight of his rudeness landed on me. And I actually wanted it to redound back on him. Because given that it didn't land on him, given that he got away with it, I felt like it was on me until it was on him. Now, this was like a nothing incident, right? This is not a big deal. But on a microscopic level... I felt that to forgive that guy, I had to absorb the cost. Now, to be sure, part of my forgiveness of this guy was also just humbling myself and not being petty, right? Growing some thicker skin. But can you see how that example illustrates that forgiveness always requires a cost, Justice involves the wrongdoer paying. Forgiveness is when the wronged pays in their place, when the wronged absorbs the cost and does not seek retribution. Friends, listen, I I was hesitant even to use that example 
Because the cost of our sin against a holy God is incomparably greater than any of the things that we do to one another. Our sins have violated something incomparably more important than the personal feelings of a passerby. We have spent our lives disdaining and spurning and offending the God who is on top. And either we will pay, or if by God's grace He forgives us, God will pay for us. You see where we've been? Who receives the ransom of this death? God receives it. Why is it necessary? First, it's necessary in order for God to be God and to be forgiving. Second, it's because forgiveness always has a cost, which brings us to this third question, final question about this ransom. How does it work? How does this ransom work? Well, in a word, it works through substitution. This ransom works through substitution. It works as Jesus, the God-man, pays in our place. Jesus says in Mark 10, 45, that he came to give his life as a ransom for many. Note that preposition, for Now, in English, the word for can mean many things. It can mean on behalf of or to the advantage of. Would you do something for me? Would you do something out of love for me? But in this case, the, the word that Jesus uses that gets translated for is a very specific word, which means in the place of. It means as a substitute for Uh, Like in the sentence, the teacher is sick, so she is subbing in for him. She is stepping into his place. Friends, you, you see, if we are offended, either the person who offends us must pay or we can pay ourselves. What does it look like when we pay? Uh, It looks like us not treating that person as they deserve. And that's hard. And when we're absorbing the cost of that hard, we're paying in their place. Friends, what does it look like when the triune eternal God, who is the creator and judge of all things, decides to pay in our place? What does it look like when that God decides you have sinned, you ought to pay, but in love and mercy, I will pay? What does it look like? The Bible teaches that it looks like the Son of God dying on the cross, taking our sin and its cost in himself so that God might be just and the justifier of all who have faith in Jesus. What does it look like when the triune God of the universe pays for our sins 
It looks like the Father, the Son, and the Spirit working together to condemn sin, to uphold the godness of God, to vent the righteous wrath of God, and to maintain God's supremacy even as he forgives us. It looks like Jesus subbing in for us, swapping destinies with us, stepping into our place as our substitute. As the theologians say, it looks like penal substitutionary atonement. Penal having to do with a penalty, paying a penalty. Substitutionary, you know what that word means? Atonement. All that's necessary to bring man and God back together. At one meant is how that word got formed in English. Brothers and sisters, this is how Jesus has served us. He has become the ransom that we could not pay so that we who have put ourselves on top of God might be forgiven and reconciled to him, that we might know him as our loving and forgiving father, and that we might be like him, not in dying for the sins of the world, uh, but in giving ourselves in love for others. Friend, if you're here this morning and you're not yet a follower of Jesus, you need this ransom. Friend, you need this ransom. And the Son of Man is willing to serve you if you will come to him in faith. Please don't leave here this morning without speaking to someone about how that ransom can be yours. Saints, let's pray now as we close. Father, would you forgive us for our worldly attitudes toward greatness, toward authority? Would you forgive us for the ways that we have put ourselves above others and ourselves above you in our sin and rebellion? God, thank you for Jesus who came not to be served, but to serve. Lord, would you strengthen us to follow him? Would you cause us to be so in love with him that we delight to respond to his love and service with service. Lord, would we understand more and more deeply all that Christ has done in being our ransom? Lord, would you make us eager to speak of that ransom uh, to those who don't yet have it? Lord, I pray that if anyone's here today who, who sin not yet paid for by the substitute, the ransom Jesus, that you would give them new life. Lord, receive our worship now as we close our service in Jesus' name. Amen.